I want you to open your Bible to Romans chapter 12 this morning, and I want to share with you some things out of that chapter. Not so much a, a detailed exposition of the chapter, but a perspective necessary for the application of the truths that are here. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we have perhaps one of the most familiar passages in all of Scripture. And you know it very well. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So here he talks about presenting your body to Christ, to God. And then in verse 2, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So here you have in verse 1, the body, and in verse 2, the mind. Those two verses speak of the total presentation of the believer in dedication to service to God. In verses 3 through 8, he then talks about spiritual service in terms of using our spiritual gifts. And we all have differing gifts, though we're all a part of the body. And in verse 6, he begins to list some of those different gifts and encourages each who has those gifts to use them. Now, the point that I want you to grab is that he has here a call for commitment, a call for dedication. And this is really a call for the disciplined life, to discipline your body, to discipline your mind, to discipline the use of your energy for the exercise of your spiritual gift. Then notice again in verse 9, he begins with a whole lot of things that manifest a disciplined life. You're to love without hypocrisy. You're to hate what is evil. You're to hold tightly to what is good. You're to be kindly affectionate with one another with brotherly love. In honor, you are to prefer one another. You're not to be lazy in your matters of business. You're to be zealous in your spirit that is filled with zeal, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, diligent in prayer. In verse uh, 13, he talks about distributing to the necessity of the saints, given to hospitality, which means the love of strangers. You're to bless those who persecute you. Uh, You're to rejoice with those that rejoice. Verse 15, weep with those that weep. You're to think of everyone equally. Verse 16, without impartiality. You're not to be concerned about high things, but condescend to lowly people. You're not to be conceited and give back evil to no man, even though he gives you evil. All the way down, finally in verse 21, after talking about Vengeance, which is another sin to be avoided, he says, overcome evil with good. Now, here are the elements of a disciplined life. A disciplined life commits the body to Jesus Christ. A disciplined life commits the mind to the Word of God. A disciplined life commits the energy to the exercise of spiritual gifts. A disciplined life has all the right attitudes and responses toward everyone and everything. Here is the pattern for a disciplined life. Now, the question that always comes is, how do you come to the place where you can live a disciplined life? How do you cultivate cultivate a disciplined life? And that's what I want to talk about as we kind of look at this passage. Lenin once said, who is no friend to Christianity, but every once in a while said something true. Lenin said, quote, with a handful of dedicated people who will give me their lives, I will control the world. End quote. Frankly, the world belongs to the self-disciplined. People without self-discipline really make little or no contribution to the world. The world is controlled by disciplined people. Now, let me speak to that issue, if I might, for a moment. 
Unfortunately, the American way of life has lost sight of something that for many, many years in America was a matter of course, and that was the need for personal self-discipline. America attained its greatness in the world because it grew a generation after generation of self-disciplined people. We did not come to economic prowess as we have attained in the world. We did not come to sociological uh, dignity as we have arrived in the world. We did not gain all of the strides that we have gained in terms of science and education. We did not gain those things just because it happened to work that way. We gained those things because the country basically was a country built by self-disciplined people who knew they had a goal in mind and were willing to pay the price to attain the goal. We have been throughout our history a highly committed, self-disciplined people. But in your generation, there has developed a new American mentality. And that is not the mentality of self-discipline, that is the mentality of indulgence. That is not the mentality of hard work, it is the mentality of relaxation. It is not the mentality of applying my energies to that which matters, it is the mentality of applying my energies to that which does not matter, such as recreation. And we, we say in America that we live under the stress of a fast pace. But if you sit down and analyze what that fast pace involves, much of it involves nothing of any consequence. It's simply motion. Our fast pace has brought us mental hospitals, drugs, and suicide because it is the frantic activity of an out-of-controlled, undisciplined group of people trying to fill up their time with self-satisfaction who have very little meaningful and purposeful goals and objectives. It is the, it is the frenetic pace of self-improvement, self-fulfillment, success, money, material things. It's a fury to have a good time. And it has very little relationship to very significant objectives in terms of personal development or the betterment of human society. We love to play, basically. We want to play hard. We love to be entertained. And we work very hard at being entertained. But our play efforts can't possibly return to us what we invest in them. There's no way. The Bible says bodily exercise profits little, but godliness with contentment is great gain. We spend a tremendous amount of time on the physical, uh, exercising, shopping, indulging ourselves in those things which appeal to the lowest part of us, not necessarily a sinful part of us, but the lowest part of us in terms of eternal consequences. And as I said, we love to play, but all our play cannot return to us anywhere near what we put into it. Let me take it a step further. When our play and our recreation and our relaxation and our hang-loose attitude and our waste of time that so characterizes our culture exceeds any kind of balance, it becomes the mark of a decadent society. And what we have in America today is a decadent society, and listen closely, not only measured by its commitment to sexual promiscuity and sin, not only measured by its drunkenness and its drugs, but measured by its inability to maintain balance in the area of self-discipline toward meaningful goals. Now, to put it right where you live, 
it's much easier for you to lay back, kick back, fool around, have recreation and relaxation than it is to discipline yourself to study for your final. Now, you're responsible for that, but may I suggest to you, to help you off the hook a little bit, you have also been sold a pile of lies by a decadent society that you ought to relax. You ought to relax. I remember being at a pastor's conference. For four days, we preached to 1,700 pastors. For four days, we preached about the disciplined life. We spoke about the need to commit yourself to prayer and the study of the Word and to spend your energies and the use of your gifts. And even if you were brought to the place of shortening your life, if you had maximized the time you had to the glory of God, that's all right. We did that for four days, and then a final speaker blew in out of town and gave the final message to sum the whole thing up on relaxation in the ministry. And just about undid everything we had done, and we had a great distress. But he was mirroring a whole cultural perspective of kickback approach to everything that I think has had a terrible legacy and a, a frightful legacy on generations of youth like yourself. It takes great discipline to produce great thinkers. It takes tremendous discipline to produce great artists, scientists, theologians, musicians, technicians. The world belongs to the disciplined. There are some people in our culture who are panicked about this, people who aren't even Christians, but are so afraid that America will cease to produce great people that they are calling for a wholesale dramatic change in all of education. It takes no skill and no discipline to watch a ball game. It takes no skill or discipline, really, in terms of effective goals and objectives to play a tennis match or a golf game or whatever. Richard Shelley Taylor in his book The Disciplined Life said, there was a time when intercollegiate debating drew big crowds. Now the debate is held in a side room while the crowd cheers at the basketball game. This shift of interest from the intellectual to the recreational has occurred even in Christian colleges and is so widespread that the accent is now on relaxation and recreation. It must be emphatically asserted that the shift of excited popular interest from debate to basketball is in definite terms a sign of cultural decline. We've lost the balance. We are facing in our society what we have to call marks of shallowness, marks of superficiality. Sports, recreation, relaxation have reached a place where they are no longer in balance. In balance, they're wonderful things. Out of balance, they become a curse. They return limited satisfaction and ultimately very little long-term benefit. Theodore Roosevelt said, quote, The things that will destroy America are prosperity at any price, peace at any price, safety first instead of duty first, the love of soft living, and the get-rich theory of life. He was a prophet, wasn't he? In the battle for ideas, in the battle for truth, the disciplined mind always has the advantage. And one of the things that you need to be doing during your education is training yourself to have a disciplined mind. 
so that you can evaluate and analyze and select and plan and concentrate and respond accurately to the things that are going on around you. By the way, the world also belongs to those who can communicate, and it goes without saying that the disciplined mind is the key to clarity in communication. It is the disciplined mind that can speak persuasively. It is the disciplined mind that can speak with clarity. Disciplined character belongs to the person who achieves balance by bringing all faculties and powers under control. There is order, consistency, and purpose in his life. As a result, a disciplined person has poise and grace. He does not panic and he does not indulge in maudlin self-pity when he's tossed around by the cross-currents of his culture. He rises courageously, even heroically, to meet life and deal with life and conquer difficulties. He resolutely faces his duty, understanding what he is capable of doing. He is governed not by what pressure comes from the outside, but by his internal sense of responsibility and duty and a definition of right and wrong given to him by the Word of God. He has inward resources. He has personal reserve that are the wonder of weaker souls. And you know how that is. All of us have looked at people whom we feel to be almost inexplicable because of the capabilities they have or because of the amount of output of work that they can generate. And we say to ourselves, are they human? How do they do that? And the key to understanding that is not to understand the level of their IQ, but the level of their discipline. Disciplined people bring adversity under tribute and compel adversity to serve them. They see obstacles as strengthening items. There is power in that kind of life. I remember reading years ago about Madame Guyan Though put in prison, she wrote this very famous piece of poetry. My cage confines me round, abroad I cannot fly, but though my wing is closely bound, my heart's at liberty. My prison walls cannot control the flight, the freedom of my soul. There's power in that kind of life. Now let me talk a little more about this. The disciplined life, the disciplined character, is the only character that can carry through in the positions of larger responsibility. Now listen to what I say. Your ultimate place in this world and your ultimate responsibility in this world will be only as great as your self-discipline. You may start out in a significant place, but if you do not have the self-discipline it takes to meet the need of that place, you won't end up there. You may start out in a very small place, but by the capacity of your self-discipline and ability to be in control of your environment, you will rise to meet the level of that capacity. This is true in industry, this is true in education, this is true everywhere, even in terms of the church. And there are many people who have great gifts and great expectations and great goals and great ambitions and great desires that are never reached, that never materialize, that never come to pass. 
And the reason is not a lack of innate ability. The reason is not a lack of training. The reason is a lack of self-discipline. They are never up to the demands of that task. It's sad. It's really sad to see people with great God-given talent and great God-given gifts who never ever will know the full expression of those gifts because they are not disciplined in terms of their own personal life. It may be that by uh, being born in the right family, maybe your father owns the factory, um, you rise to a position of power. It may be that just good fortune comes along and you get in a position where you, uh, you're in over your head, but you won't maintain it. You won't be able to stay there. I've seen this happen in the church all my life long. I've seen young guys come out of Bible college or come out of seminary, and they have natural skills. They have great verbal skills. They can go in and they'll meet with a committee in a church that's looking for a youth director or a pastor, and they'll snow those people, and they'll preach twice and give both of their sugar stick sermons. They're zingers. And the church will hire them on the basis of a couple of good sermons and verbalization, good-looking, sharp personality, and they go right down the proverbial tubes because they lack self-discipline. And eventually they can't carry the load. They collapse under the weight of responsibility, the pressure, and the complexity of detail which they cannot handle. They lack the strength of leadership. They lack the fullness of knowledge, the soundness of judgment, which can only be built into a life bit by bit, hour by hour, year by year, through discipline. There are many young people, I'm sure, right here who would like to become a doctor or a top-flight scientist or a top-flight educator or a pastor or a missionary, but because you will not buckle down and teach yourself self-discipline, that's never going to happen. It'll never happen. Many young people would like to achieve mastery in music or the arts, but it never happens because they will not make the commitment. My friend Chris Parkening, who is the leading classical guitarist in the world, some of you heard him last night in church play, I don't think our people even understand how good he is. There's no one in the world better. I said, how did it all happen? He said, well, it happened this way. From the time I was a small child until I reached my career, and even now, I practice a minimum of five hours a day. He said, as a boy, my father sat opposite me on a stool, and every time I made a, made a mistake, he kicked me in the shin. Well, I'm not sure that has to be part of the baggage that goes with the practice session. But you don't get there very easily. Somebody was discussing golf not long ago, and they said, isn't it amazing how those guys can hit the golf ball from 180 yards away or 200 yards away and put it within 10 feet of the cup. And for those of us who hack the course to death, it does seem amazing. What you have to understand is that when they were interviewing Lee Trevino and asked him that, he said, you could do it too if you hit 3,000 golf balls a day. Doesn't happen by accident. There's not, there's not magic in hitting a golf ball within 10 feet of the cup. You, do, you have to do it 3,000 times a day for 10 years, then you might have a shot. The world belongs to those kinds of people. I remember reading about Steve Garvey. Steve Garvey said from the time that he was a little leaguer, he swung a bat in his garage 500 times a day, every single day of his life, without a ball. No ball, just swung a bat. Until his swing is so grooved, he shakes hands like this. See? 
past the soup. It's everything is like this, see? Come back. You understand? And whatever your goals in life, you're not going to fall in the gravy. That just doesn't happen. It may be that you are fortunate enough to land a position, but you'll never hold it unless you're self-disciplined. It's sad to see people who are too lazy or too self-indulgent to do what it takes to get there. You know what Paul said? He put it very simply. He said, I beat my body to bring it into what? Subjection. I remember speaking at Dallas Seminary one time. I was speaking to a group of uh, students in the preaching class, and I was talking to the professor there who's now the president of Denver Seminary, Dr. Haddon Robinson. I said, tell me the common denominator in great preachers. Tell me the thing that, that stands out in your mind among those you know to be very successful in the ministry. I'm interested. He said, it's a very simple thing. I have never met a successful man in the ministry who was not highly competitive. In fact, as I think about it, I've never, ne never met a successful man or woman in anything who was not highly competitive. I said, competitive in what sense? He said, in this sense. Not that he has a sense of competing against other people, but that he has the ability to compete against his own weakness and to overcome his own weakness, his own inability, his own laziness, his own ignorance, all those things that debilitate him. It's like Pogo said, we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. The toughest thing in self-discipline is not to be better than somebody else, but it is to be the very best that I can be. And you start now. I started to, to cultivate a sense of self-discipline in my life as a young person in sports because for some reason I had a driving desire to be the very best that I could be and I was not necessarily that great natural athlete, although you have to have some natural ability. For me, by the time I got to college, it was a matter of constant, unending discipline. I can remember just as a pass receiver on our football team in college, in the dark, running pass routes to the lights of cars that were parked in the parking lot, and I asked if they would leave their car lights on so the quarterback and I could work out an extra half an hour and just run pass routes and pass routes and pass routes until he knew where I was and I knew where the ball was without ever even having to think about it. And going into the season with that kind of preparation, uh, it's little wonder that we had the success that we had and that year ended up second in the collegiate football system for all of America in pass offense per game. And he ended up the number one quarterback in terms of pass completion just because of the constant discipline to be the best you can be. That's true in any area. A young man said to me one time, uh, how do you, what's your secret to great preaching? And I said, it's the ability to stay in a chair till the work's done. And that's not easy. And I'm not basically a student. That's not, that's not my background. I'm not an egghead. That's not my orientation. I like to be out and doing things, so it's a discipline. Now, let me take it a step further. What is discipline? I've tried to point up the importance of it in what I've said. Now I want to talk about what it is. What is self-discipline? How would you define self-discipline? In other words, if this is our goal, what are we shooting at? Let me give you a definition. You might want to write it down. Self-discipline is this. The ability to regulate conduct. The ability to regulate conduct. Listen carefully. By principle, the ability to regulate conduct by principle and sound judgment. It is the ability to regulate conduct by principle and sound judgment rather than by... It is the ability to regulate 
conduct by principle and sound judgment rather than by impulse, rather than by impulse, desire, high pressure, or social custom. You get that? Self-discipline is the ability to regulate conduct by principle and sound judgment rather than by impulse, desire, high pressure, or social custom. You understand what that's saying? What controls your conduct? All right, you've got two hours tonight, right? Let's say you've eaten dinner, you've got two or three hours. What regulates what you do? Think about it. Somebody comes to your door and says, Hey, you want to go down and get some yogurt? Whoa, I'm going, man. Shut the book. Is that principle and sound judgment? Or is that impulse? Now, once in a while, we all respond to impulse. What about high pressure? Well, everybody does it. I mean, you don't want to hang around and study. Everybody's going to do that. What controls your conduct? The self-disciplined person's conduct is controlled by principle and sound judgment. He subordinates the body, the emotions, the speech to what is right. Spiritually speaking, that means you live according to the Word of God. Not according to your fleshly desire. Not according to the social pressure around you. Not according to the spirit of the age. But according to the Word of God. This is where discipline translates into your spiritual life. You see, we need that discipline. It's why, as you think about getting married in the future, and some of you are thinking about it probably right now, you have to realize that the best thing you can give to your children is strong discipline. Because that's where they learn to be self-disciplined. And as they grow, you discipline them in the spiritual area. Because even when we get to be adults, we still need strong discipline patterns in order to subjugate our emotion and our desire and our self-will to the Word of God, to what is right and good and pure and holy. So, discipline then is the ability to place myself under the control of divine principles rather than momentary desires. You got that? I mean, you look at Romans 12 and you say, how am I going to commit myself? How am I going to dedicate my body and my mind and use my gifts and do all of those things and all the other things that God would have me to do as a Christian? You've got to be disciplined. How am I going to get disciplined? One, you've got to understand the importance of it. That's what I was telling you. Two, you have to understand what it is. It is the ability to subject yourself to what is right and true and good instead of being controlled by your momentary impulse. Now, a final word as we just talk about this theme. How do I train myself to do this? And I'm going to give you some principles. In fact, I'll give you about half a dozen of them. Okay? Here's how, and these are personal, right out of my own heart to you. Here's how to cultivate self-discipline. Number one. Start small. Okay? Start small. Let me give you a suggestion. Start with your room. Clean it. Pick it up. Put it away. Um, clean your drawers. God forbid. Right? Start small. Um, let me give you another one. Be on time. Be on time. 
I learned that in seminary because I had a professor who loathed being late. He said to us the first day in class, if you're late for this class, you show no respect for the professor. And since the subject is the Word of God, you show no respect for the Word of God, and I will note with regularity whether you are on time. And we were on time. In fact, that was the class of all classes I ever took that I wanted to get a 100% in because I really wanted to make a point with him. Start small. Be on time. Cultivate being on time. That's a good place to start to discipline your life. Somebody says, I'll meet you at 5 o'clock. Be there. Don't say, oh, well, they'll be a little late. Oh, it doesn't really matter. I'll float in late to class. I'll float in late to this. I'll float in late to chapel. I'll float in late to church. I Learn to be on time. That's a small way to begin to discipline your life. Because being on time means that before you're there on time, you've had to order a whole lot of other little details, right? To make sure you got there on time. Now, you think it's tough now. Where do you get to my situation where you've got one slow wife and four kids? And her, her lack of speed is directly related to the four kids. Uh, now three since Matt's out of the house, but... I mean, it isn't easy, but all through my life, I have cultivated a habit of being on time, and that's part of discipline, because as soon as I'm on time, that means backing up to that, I've had to order a whole lot of other things to make sure everything is in line for me to be on time. And I have constant deadlines, constant deadlines. It's a great way to start to teach yourself self-discipline. You might even put up a little note somewhere that says, be on time, just to jog your mind. Start small. Start small. Second principle, do the hardest thing first. Do the hardest thing first. Whatever's the most difficult thing, do it first. What's the tendency? What's the natural tendency? Do the hardest thing what? Never. <laughs> and then from there you start to you come to the last. Yeah, see, that doesn't teach you anything. Then you spend your whole life procrastinating, your whole life doing the hardest task with the least amount of time and energy, which means you always wind up with the most difficult task done half-baked. Start and do the first thing, do the hardest thing first. Very important. Very important. There are many, many people who fail not because of a lack of ability, not because of a lack of talent, not because of a lack of intelligence or training, but because they can't take the difficult task and do it first so that they do it with the most amount of time and with the greatest amount of thoroughness and leave the easy things for the end. That is a, that's a backbreaker in the area of self-discipline. Do the most difficult task first. For me, to, to make it a very personal illustration, that means I have two Sunday sermons to do every week and they are the first thing I do every week because they're the most difficult. Whatever other things I have remaining to do, I throw in at the end. If I started with all the piddly little things like this phone call and that phone call and meet this person and do that and write this and go over this, I would push myself to the wall by the end of the week and then I would have the very difficult task to do with the least amount of time and energy and I would produce that which would be in my own mind inferior. Thirdly, organize your life. I wouldn't want you to raise your hand on this, but I'd like you to answer the question in your own heart. 
How many of you have a daily log, either written down or in mind, of what you want to accomplish in a given day? How many of you never even thought of such a thing? How many of you can hardly get to the classes you're supposed to be at, let alone plan anything? You see, that's the difference. I'm talking to you young people about your, your future. When college is all over and the hurrahs are gone and you walk away from the place, what are you going to have to offer the world that's going to put you in a strategic place? It's going to be your self-discipline. That's even true for girls. You say, well, I'm not going into a career. Yeah, but it would be nice to think about the fact that you could offer to some wonderful guy a girl who had a sense of self-discipline. Uh, I wouldn't want to tell you all the sad tales of husbands who come in giving me stories about their wives' lack of self-discipline, which means nothing around the house ever gets done properly. This is all about life. So learn to organize your life. Cultivate in your mind a sense of priorities. What are important to you? List them. I remember a, a violinist being interviewed on the radio years ago, and she was playing a concert in Carnegie Hall, and this guy was interviewing her, and he said, what's the key to your success? She said, planned neglect. He said, what do you mean by planned neglect? She said, I plan to neglect everything that isn't a priority. And I start out every day practicing my violin, and I practice as many hours as I need to accomplish what I want to accomplish, and then whatever time is left I use for the things that are less priority. Well, what are your priorities? They ought to be spiritual, should they not? Organize your life. Don't take life as it comes. Don't let life dictate to you what you will do and how you will think and how you will react. That means that you're responding to impulse, desire, high pressure, and social custom. You control your time. I look at every day as a block of time that I can totally control. Now, I have to do things that people make me do. Uh, people tell me to do things. Harriet says, you've got to do this today when I come here on Monday. When I go to the church on Tuesday, Marilyn says, you've got to do this today. There are things that I have to do, but there are things that I have chosen to do, but in doing those and with the time I have, I can control that environment. Look at your day and learn to control it, to organize it. Fourthly, a very essential part of self-discipline is be grateful for correction. Be grateful for correction. When someone corrects you, be grateful for that. Why? That's intended to make you a better what? A better person. If you're defensive, you've got a problem. If you're defensive, you're very hard to work with. I mean, let's face it, it's not as if you're already perfect, is it? You know, even when you're criticized unjustly, you ought, to, you ought to take whatever kernel of truth there is in that criticism and apply it to your life. If someone says to you this and that about your life and you say, well, that's not totally true, but boy, it, it, does, it does have a point. A lady came to me after the sermon Sunday morning and said, I appreciated what you said, but uh, I think there was one thing that you said that could lead to a great misunderstanding, and so she corrected me at that point. And, you know, my natural response is, ah, get out of here, lady. What do you think you're saying? You know, I'm the preacher. Who are you? You know, that's your, that's your, your fallenness screaming out. You know, give me somebody who, you know, says nice things. I don't need this. I mean, that's, that's sort of your, what you expect. But as she spoke, by the grace of God, my response was to say to her, well, you know, that's true, and I appreciate that, and that's a sensitivity that I want to develop in my own heart. And you need to learn to accept that kind of thing so that you can apply whatever element of truthfulness there is inherent in the criticism to your life to reshape some area that can be better designed for service to God. And five. So he said, start small, do the hardest thing first, organize your life, be grateful for correction. Let me tell you something. 
about the one I just gave you. I've worked with people for many years. We have on our church staff about 220 people. We have 50 pastors. We work with a lot of folks there. There are a lot of folks here at the college. Any of you who have worked with people, let me tell you what I believe to be a critical aspect of anyone who develops into leadership, and that is a teachable spirit. If you can't take correction, you're down a dead-end street. Because you've got to be able to work with people. And you've got to be able to realize that if you're not doing it the way it ought to be done or the best way, you've got to change that. Flexibility. Okay, number five. Practice self-restraint. Practice self-restraint. What do you mean by that? Don't do something that you have the absolute right to do just for the sake of not doing it so you say to yourself, I don't have to do everything I'm able to do. Did you get that? Learn to say no when you don't have to. In other words, um, for me, it boils down to something like this. I like ice cream. And ice cream is not sinful. God made cows, so you know, you know the reasoning. All things are to be received with thanksgiving. First Timothy 4, I can eat ice cream. It's great. Non-intoxicating. Has no problem. So there might be a time, and, and I'm not at the point in my uh, physical form that one ice cream sundae would do me in or cause me to forfeit my testimony. So there will be times when I have that opportunity and I'll just say to myself, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because it's something I really want to do and I want to know that I can still say to myself, no, I don't do that. And that I can still say no to something I have every right to do just for the sake of learning to say no to what I don't have to say no to. That's a training process for me. There may be a day during the week when I don't eat anything. It's not spiritual. I don't go out and contemplate my navel to become more holy. It's not a spiritual exercise. It's just a matter of disciplining myself so that I'm not under the control of food to be able to say no. I want to maintain that kind of control, that kind of self-discipline, because there are going to be some days when I'm busy, when I'm active, and I can't eat. And if I am so locked in to some kind of food habits that I have to break a pattern of spiritual ministry or involvement to go eat or everything goes wacky within me, i got a problem. So that's part of discipline. Learn to, to teach yourself restraint by denying yourself something you have every right to just to keep yourself in control of all the areas of your life. And I, I think another way you practice self-restraint is to do things that are difficult. Do things that are difficult. Don't just spend your whole life doing what is easy. Do things that you have to put out an effort to do. And then fix it. And this is another very practical, and these things this morning have really been just practical things. A very practical thing is welcome responsibility. Welcome responsibility. You know how to, be a, how to train yourself to be a self-disciplined person? Get this. Volunteer. When something is suggested that needs to be done, you volunteer to do it. You say, well, I'm very busy. That's just the point. As soon as you volunteer, you're stuck. And now you've got to exercise the discipline to get it done. And again, this is very practical. I, I began to do this in the early years of the church, and I, I still want to be as much as possible able to do that. I'll take care of that. And I say that spontaneously without even thinking about it. I'll do that. I'd be glad to follow up on that. Sure, I'll contact that person. Hey, I'd like to do that. I'd like to write that letter. I'd like to get involved in that. I want to do that. And I say that, and then I walk away saying, oh, man, why did I say that? Now, I mean, on top of everything else, I've got to do that, but it's a good thing 
because welcoming responsibility forces me into filling up the time that could be wasted with things that are meaningful. It assists me in the matter of self-discipline. Now, all of that, all of that is just practical stuff about self-discipline. But let me put it in the spiritual dimension in a perspective. If you try to do all that in the flesh, what will happen? You'll get nothing but the flesh. So Philippians chapter 2 might be a good passage to look at, verses 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I think the idea of the passage is you have salvation on the inside, now work it out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is, uh, with an adoration and a worship and an awe of God. Spend your life as an act of worship and work out your salvation. Give it everything you've got, the self-disciplined life. But then verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So when I've given my best, the key is that in giving my best, I have been committed to Christ who is doing the work through me. Let me close with an interesting story. I'm going to read it to you. When Ulysses, comes out of Greek mythology, when Ulysses and his men set out on their journey of conquest, they were warned by Cicero to, uh, by Circe rather, the siren goddess, they were warned by Circe to avoid the sirens at all costs. She told them that the sirens' voices were very alluring but fatal to all who stopped and listened to them. The unfortunate listeners became rooted like a tree and couldn't tear themselves away until they died of hunger. Fill your companions' ears with wax, Circe said. If you yourself want to listen to their song, Ulysses, first let your men tie you securely to the ship's mast. Ulysses heeded her advice. If the melody beguiles me, he ordered his men, I charge you, disobey my word and bend more strongly to your oars. At length, Ulysses heard the beautiful strains that stole into his mind, overpowered his body, and overcame his will. As the music came sweeter and sweeter, Ulysses' love for home weakened. He struggled with his shame, but at last the bewitching voices of the sirens prevailed. Loose me and let me stay with the sirens, he raged. He threatened and entreated. He promised his men mountains of gold with desperate signs and gestures. His men only bound him more tightly. He raged and tore at his ropes, for it was agony for him to leave the spot. But not until the last sound of music died away in the distance did they set him free. He had passed out of the zone of temptation. Jason, another character in Greek mythology, and his Argonauts, set out in search of the Golden Fleece. Medea warned Jason and his men of the menace of the sirens as they began to hear their bewitching strains. All around they could see the shore strewn with the bones of those who succumbed to the sirens' charm. On board the boat was Orpheus, the king of minstrels. Let them match their songs with my song, he challenged. The three maidens whom they could see and those silvery voices stole over the moonlit waters. 
There were seagulls in long lines and shoals of fish that came to listen. The oars of Jason's heroes fell from their hypnotized hands, their heads drooped, and their heavy eyes closed. Then Medea cried to Orpheus, Sing louder, wake up the sluggards. Orpheus struck his skillful hand over the strings of his harp, and his voice rose like a trumpet, and the music penetrated the souls of the infatuated men, and their souls were thrilled by Orpheus. Orpheus kept on singing until his voice completely drowned the voices of the sirens. And once again the Argonauts took up their oars, and Jason and his men sailed to victory. Sing the song again, Orpheus, they cried. We will dare and suffer to the dying end. What's the point of these two stories? Listen. Those stories illustrate two possible ways of gaining victory over the desires of the flesh. One is the way of negation and prohibition, stuffing wax in your ears and tying you to the mass. That's of some help, and it has its place. Ulysses was bound. Otherwise, he would have yielded to the cravings of his heart. He was confined. He couldn't break out. His men had wax in their ears, or they would have yielded also. And I suppose the teachings of Buddha and Confucius might bring you that far. But it is an incontrovertible fact that to concentrate the mind on the desires of the flesh, even if trying to conquer them, seems only to intensify the desire. How much better is the Orphean music than the Ulyssian wax? With the heavenly Orpheus on board, who would that be? The Holy Spirit. We listen to his heavenly music, and the voices of the sirens of the world lose their appeal. So instead of a legalistic system of do's and don'ts that ties us to the mass, we live a life totally committed to the constant attention to the Word of God and the Spirit of God, which cultivates in us the disciplined life. Let's pray. Our Father, it would be a desire, all of us here, to be disciplined, to succeed at whatever objectives you have put within our hearts. It would be our desire to do our very best. It would be our desire to meet the potential that you've given us for the kingdom. It would be our desire to be all that Christ would want us to be. And more than that, we know it's your desire. And that's so comforting. And it's your desire. And you've given us the means in the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Word of God. And may we, Lord, make the commitment out of a heart of gratitude for our salvation and for the Word and for the Spirit and for the blessings you pour on us eternally, may it be our heart's desire to begin now to train ourselves to be disciplined. That when the time comes that we enter into the fullness of what you've prepared for us, we will be all that you would have us to be all that you have made us to be. And we'll thank you in anticipation of that time and for the blessings that await us even this day. For Christ's sake, amen.